Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. This is the Word of God, and this is the text that we are anchoring this series in called The Gospel. We're doing something a little bit different in this series. We're staying in this text throughout the whole series. Of course, we're using this text as a launching point to talk about all of the Bible. The message of the whole scripture is the gospel in some ways, and that's where we're going to go today. But before we go there, I just want to recap briefly for those of you that haven't been able to be with us the last two weeks where we've been in this series. This is week three. If you were here two weeks ago, Lloyd began his message and really began the series by asking a question, what matters most in life? It's a big question. What matters most? And he took us to this passage and he said, here's the reason why Paul wrote this, why he wanted to remind a particular church. This is the church that was meeting in the city of Corinth. And this church had kind of gone off the rails a little bit. There were all kinds of problems in this church. There were marital problems. There were legal problems. There were problems with their worship. They were misusing and abusing the Lord's table. Uh, There were all kinds of things going on in this church. And so this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, we call 1 Corinthians, is a corrective letter. But the big idea in Corinthians is to take them back to the good news, to take them back to their identity in the gospel. And then last week, Michael was here, and he kind of built on this idea, used the analogy, you told the story of Vince Lombardi with his football team, the famous line where, where Vince Lombardi held up the football to his NFL players and said, this, gentlemen, this is a football. So this is why we're doing this series, Men and Women of Fellowship Bible Church, this is the gospel. This is the foundation. This is what roots our identity. And Michael unpacked kind of the the big theological idea behind the gospel, this theological concept of substitutionary atonement. It's a little bit of a mouthful, but he summarized it in a really helpful way. And I want us to restate what Michael said last week. So let me remind you of this, and then we'll say it together. Here's what substitutionary atonement means, that Christ died in our place on our behalf instead of us and let's just say that together as a body Christ died in our place on our behalf instead of us this is the good news this is the gospel and and at one point in the message Michael said this statement which I thought was worth writing down all of life must flow from a foundation of understanding what this gospel is and means all of life and so that's where we want to go this morning We want to talk about how the gospel informs your entire life, your entire existence, your relationships with people you care about, the the longings and hurts of your soul, your hopes and dreams, your careers, your families. This narrative becomes the story by which we live by. And so many of you are thinking, oh, I'm not sure I follow that, right? Isn't the gospel what I believe that secures me in eternity? Yes, But it's much more, much more. 
So I want to get you there by, by telling you uh, a story from a movie, a movie that most of you in this room have watched. Not all of you, but the movie The Lion King. Now, most of you either had kids that watch it or grandkids. Maybe you were young enough, it's, you know, when it came out. Of course, Disney is so brilliant. They keep re-releasing these things and making a killing on this. So most of us have seen The Lion King. But even if you haven't, I think you'll be able to follow along with this illustration. Simba, who's the young lion, the, the lion cub that was born to be the future king, he is tricked into believing that he killed his father. The reality was his father was murdered by Scar, Simba's uncle but Simba is cast out he runs away because he's believing a lie and he he essentially goes to die in the wilderness but he's rescued by these two uh, animals that become friends there's a mere cat and a warthog and they teach him a new narrative they teach him a new story it's summarized by this catchy little phrase hakuna matata no worries and so Simba learns to eat slugs and insects and and bugs, and he learns to relax and take it easy, and all that responsibility is behind him, and all that guilt and shame is left in that other place, and he can just live this nice, comfortable, easy existence until his father shows up again. His dead father appears to him in the clouds, and this is what Mufasa, right, Simba's father, this is what Mufasa says to Simba. He says, Simba, That's, that's all the James Earl Jones I got. <laughs> I'm going to shift back in my normal voice. Simba, you have forgotten me. Now, here's what's interesting about that. Simba hadn't forgotten Mufasa. Simba's, Simba's like, never. How could I? In fact, I believe Simba thought about his dad every single day. Right? How could he forget his dad, much less the dad that he believes he was responsible for killing But then Mufasa goes on. He says, you have forgotten who you are and so have forgotten me. And then this really piercing line, you are more than what you have become. Now, what did Simba forget? He didn't forget who his dad was. He didn't forget that story. But here's what he forgot. Or you might say it this way. Here's what Simba lost. He lost the defining narrative of his life. The story of Simba's life centers around his identity as the son of the king. And he lost that defining story. And he bought into a new story. He bought into two new stories. The first was an outright lie planted in him by Scar that he was responsible, that he was guilty, that he needed to run away. But the second narrative was by well-meaning friends who said it's okay just to be and eat slugs and grubs and it doesn't matter what's happening out there. Those are the two narratives that Simba had learned to live by and Mufasa is taking him back saying you have forgotten something important, who you are. Now, I think this is what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians. He's going to these believers in this church, these men and women who are Christians, and he's saying, look, you're Christians, but you've forgotten who you are. You are more than what you have become. And so we need the same thing, don't we? We need the same thing as the Corinthians. We tend to live by false narrative false 
stories. We tend to forget who we are. We tend to live according to other things. We tend to eat slugs and grubs rather than engaging in our true identity as children of the King of Kings and all that that means for our relationships, our jobs, our worship, our futures, our families. So how does Paul help this body of believers remember who they are? He takes them back to the story, the truth. And so this is what I want to do today. I want us to take us back yet again to the gospel. But I want you to see the gospel in a new light. Last week we talked about how it means that that your sins have been forgiven. Of course, we're still going to talk about that. That's absolutely true. But where I want to go this morning with it is, yes, your sins are forgiven. But here's what the whole gospel story means to you. Not just for your future, although that's going to be awesome. But for today, for right now, for your everyday life. Now, how are we going to get there? Well, I want to start with four little words in this text. And we're going to use these words, unpack them, dig into them, and then expand our view out into the whole story at large. The words are according to the scriptures. They appear twice in the text, verse 3 and verse 4. According to the scriptures, according to the scriptures. Anything that gets repeated is worth noting. So what is Paul doing? Why does he take the time to remind them, to anchor them back in this phrase, according to the scriptures? Let's unpack it. Well, in Greek, it means, or it, it literally reads, kata tas grafas. Why do, I, why do I bring this up? I want to explain this word kata. It's K-A-T-A is how you might write it in English. It's an important word. It's a connecting word, and it connects two things together, but it connects them in such a way so that one thing governs the other. So, for example, if you're going to build a house, you'd have some blueprints, Right? You wouldn't just strike out without a plan. You'd build the house according to the blueprints. If you were going to perform in a play, unless it's an improv theater, you would perform according to the script. See, the script governs the play. The blueprints govern the building of the house. And what Paul is saying here is there is a broader narrative that your lives are about that even the gospel finds its root in. It's the scriptures. It's the word of God revealed. The graphos is the Greek word for scriptures. And by the way, we talked about that word earlier in the year when we did our Word of God series. Graphos means the writings. And, and every New Testament Christian, when they saw that Greek word, they would know that the reference here is to the Old Testament scriptures. So don't think New Testament scriptures, they hadn't been written yet for the most part. So Paul's taking it back to the Old Testament. So he's saying, this news, this gospel, the death, burial, resurrection, appearance of Jesus Christ was according to the scriptures. It was right on time, right on script. It didn't happen apart from God's revelation. It happened according to God's revelation. Now, you may be wondering, okay, which, which specific prophecies are being referred to according to the scriptures? You know, this is interesting because graphos in Greek is plural. Hopefully, in your translation, it says scriptures, according to the scriptures, plural. That would be the accurate translation. Here's what's unusual about that. Most times when that phrase is used, it's singular. So most times in the New Testament, when Paul or another writer is writing, he'll say this happened according to the scripture. And it points back to a specific quote of Isaiah such and such or Psalm such and such or Ezekiel such and such. This one's different. Paul says according to the scriptures plural. So which ones is he alluding to? Well, there are a number of candidates. In fact, there are too many candidates. 
We don't know specifically which scriptures Paul was referring to. So most scholars believe what he's actually saying is the scriptures as a whole. Like the canon of the Old Testament, all those books, Genesis through Malachi, these events of the gospel happen according to them. And that's what's so significant. Now, some of you may want to write down a few references to study later. We don't have time to go back into all the prophecies. There's so many beautiful, specific, miraculous prophecies about the events of Jesus Christ that were written hundreds of years before they happened. But maybe write down in the margin of your notes if you're interested. Here are some that you may choose to dig into. Isaiah 53. Michael talked about this passage last week. Unbelievable passage. How can you read this that was written 700 years before Jesus and not see how it was pointing to him? Psalm 22. Another great one. This is the one I believe Jesus was actually thinking and meditating on this psalm while he was on the cross. Many of his last words come directly from Psalm 22. Psalm 16. Another great one. Daniel 12, Ezekiel 37. These are specific prophecies about Christ's death, the resurrection. But honestly, I think Paul's point is not so much go look at these eight passages or 23 passages or however many Old Testament passages. He's saying you need to understand that this news of the gospel is the climax, it's the fulfillment of all of the writings, all of the graphos, all of the scripture up until this point. Now, why is this so important? Because here's what it means. It means Jesus is not just a New Testament character. It means Jesus is actually the center of the story. If you want to think about it as a narrative, as a story, Jesus is the hero. The scriptures are about him. All the Old Testament pointed toward him. All the New Testament is about him. He's the central figure. Our Savior is the center of the scripture, which actually means he's the center of the universe. Now, how did I get there? Because the story of the Bible is the story of creation. It's the story of everything that is. Jesus is at the center. I want to take you one more place in Scripture that will really help drill this in from Jesus' own words. Look at Luke 24. and Turn there, if you would. Luke chapter 24. While you're turning there, let me set the context by retelling the story. So here's what's going on. This this, this event happened on Resurrection Day, like, the, you know, the literal day Jesus was raised from the dead. Two of his followers, these weren't two of the twelve, but these were other followers, they're, they're walking on the road on, on Resurrection Day, and they're, they're trying to figure out what's going on, because there are now, you know, rumors that Jesus rose from the dead, and they hadn't seen him yet, but these women said they'd seen him, and could this really be true? And we saw him die. How could this be? And they're talking about this in this Stranger comes up to them and says, what are you talking about? Of course, it's Jesus. They don't know it, right? He he blinded their eyes. He'll reveal himself to them later. But they're like, have you been hiding under a rock? You know, it's Jesus of Nazareth. We thought he was Messiah, but then he died. And and then now there's this empty tomb. What are we supposed to do? We don't know. And this is what Jesus says to them. We're going to pick it up at verse 25. Luke 24, starting in verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And here's the kicker verse, 27. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Same word, graphos, all the scriptures. 
So when he says beginning with Moses, he means Genesis, right? Because the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament written by Moses. When he says all the prophets, he means all the way through Malachi. Genesis, Malachi. All of it, all the scriptures are about him. That's a sermon I would have loved to have heard. Now, here's why this matters. Jesus is saying all the scriptures tell a story that points to me. This should influence the way we read this book. Most people think of this book as a list of rules and expectations and regulations or maybe a list of quaint sayings or maybe a history book. You know, we talked about all this earlier in the year. What this book actually is is a single narrative from Genesis all the way to Revelation about a person, the one person that the whole universe revolves around. And this is one story. And Jesus is saying the story points to me and this should matter for us. Not only should it change the way we view the scripture, it should change the way we live our lives. And this is the part that I know is still fuzzy probably in your mind. And this is where I want to go. This is how I want to spend our time in this message. Here's the big idea. I'm going to go ahead and just tell you the big idea of the message. And then I'm going to apply it. You know, I'm going to spend the rest of our time just just trying to to dig it into you personally. Because it's got to go from theology to application. All right, you know, the doctrine, the theology, the gospel, all that you know has got to sink in your heart. It's got to, got to flow into how you think, how you live, how you relate to your wife, how you relate to your husband, how you think about your neighbors, how you approach your job. It's got to infuse everything. And the reality is it doesn't for most of us. It doesn't for me a lot of times. This is why I need to come back to the gospel. So here's the big idea of the message. Just as the whole Bible centers around a single narrative about one person, So should you and I. This news about Jesus Christ, this gospel, is meant to be the defining narrative of our lives. The story that creates in us an identity. The narrative that reminds us who we are. So if it helps you, picture James Earl Jones' voice speaking to you. You have forgotten who you are. You need to come back to your defining story. It is found in the word of God, which points to your Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's what I think we need. I think we need to begin to live and think according to the scriptures. Live and think according to the scriptures. Now, here's what I mean by this, because there's one thing that I don't mean. And and what's coming to a lot of your minds right now is probably what I don't mean. When I say live and think according to the scriptures, I don't just mean that you, you, you need to grab onto more do's and more don'ts and more rules and regulations and more law and try your best to live it out and feel guilty when you fall down, right? Have you had enough of that yet? I hope you have. The law is meant to show you that you can't keep the law. So when I say live according to the scriptures, it's not a guilt trip that you need to stop doing this and start doing that. What I mean when I say live according to the scriptures is this. 
that we as a body would grow more and more to understand and root our whole identity in the grand narrative of the Bible, which centers around the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. That we would understand our own stories according to the story, that it would become the narrative, the grid through which we see other people, through which we see ourselves, through which we see our future, through which we see our past, through which we see our jobs, through which we see our families, through which we see our hobbies, through which we see our entertainment, our goals, our priorities, that the gospel would govern all of that. It is the message of the scripture. We need to make that the narrative by which we live by. And here's the deal. We're all like Simba. We've all been told these wrong, false narratives. We've bought into them, some by well-meaning people, others who mean to deceive us, and ultimately the enemy. What are some of the narratives that I tend to live by? What are some of the narratives that you tend to live by when you actually are not allowing the gospel narrative to shape your identity? I just wrote down a few that are familiar to me. Maybe some of these will resonate with you as well. Sometimes I believe that the purpose in life is to be happy. Sometimes I believe that suffering and pain are an enemy to be avoided at all costs. Sometimes I believe that more stuff brings fulfillment. Sometimes I believe that other people exist to give me what I need. Sometimes I believe that comfort is my end goal. Sometimes I believe that my value is determined by my intellect or my looks or my talents or my net worth. None of those are true. Those are false narratives, and we live by these things. So here's what we need to do. We need to retell the story in such a way over and over again that it begins to shape how we live. We need to remember who we are. This is why we gather every Sunday and come together to hear the story, to sing songs about the story, to hear the word of God preached in a way that points to the story, that reminds us of things that we've forgotten. This is what church is partly all about. So here's what I want to do. I want to retell the story again. Because right? we've got to practice knowing it, telling it, hearing it. And so I'm going to summarize it in a way that's familiar to you if you've been coming to fellowship for any length of time. If you're not, if you're new to fellowship, this may really help you summarize the whole big picture story of the Bible. And then after that, I want to do something I've never done before. I, I just, I want to read to you something I wrote about what this story means for you. I'll get to that in a minute. But first, let me just retell the story. It's actually surrounding you on the walls. Right? Fellowship has traditionally taught the story in four parts. It's kind of like a drama in four acts. Part one, creation. And that picture in the, the back left-hand corner of the room represents creation, the Garden of Eden, the way it was designed to be. It was characterized by shalom, Shalom, we translate peace. It's a, shalom is a Hebrew word. It doesn't just mean the absence of war. Shalom means everything fitting together rightly. So we were made to have right relationship with God, right relationship with each other, right relationship even with the creation that we walk in. Shalom. Act one, creation. Act two hits in Genesis chapter three, the fall. Right? The first humans chose not to live according to God's rule over them. They stepped out. They believed a false narrative. The false narrative they believed is that God does not have our best interests in at heart. And so they lived according to that narrative. And sin entered the world. Shalom was torn They started arguing between each other. They hid from God. They felt shame in their nakedness. 
Everything about creation changed at the fall. And from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through the Old Testament is all about the fall. You see glimpses pointing to the next act. But it's, but it's all future. It's all out there. It's all, you know, someone is coming who will make this right, who will make this better. Act 3, redemption. Jesus Christ hanging on that cross to stitch back together what was broken. And redemption means that anyone who puts their faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ can be made right with God, can be forgiven. Relationship can be restored between God and man. That is redemption, Act 3. And Act 4, recreation. This is the new life that awaits us. Recreation is future tense. This is what we have to look forward to. New heaven, new earth. Shalom will be put back in place fully. So what we have in part now, restored relationship with God, there we will see him face to face. What we have in part now, reconciliation between human beings, we're still sinful. There we will know fellowship that is rich and sweet and true between one another as we all worship God together. Recreation, that's the story. Creation, fall, redemption, recreation. That's the story. Now what do we do about it? How do we live according to to it I think more often than not I eat slugs and bugs and lay around thinking about myself hakuna matata and engage in my true identity and enter it into a world that desperately needs to hear good news and I need to change and you need to change we need to change so here's what I want to do. I want to read to you some things that I wrote. And, and honestly, I thought about how, what can I give this congregation to help them begin to live according to the narrative that should define their existence? And of course, what I realize is I have nothing more to give to you than what is right here. But I did think this. Could I help them see themselves in this four-act drama? Could I help them see how their relationships with others, their jobs, their families, their futures, their suffering, their hurts, finds a meaning, finds a purpose, finds an identity in the grand story? Could I help them do that? So I sat down and wrote, and and I I literally just, for the rest of the time we have, I just want to read to you. This is a little bit of a risk for me. I, I, I don't write out my messages ahead of time. I don't script them out. I scripted this out. I'm just going to read it to you. And here's my prayer as I read. My prayer is that as you hear this story retold, as you hear what it means for you personally, that it would reshape the narrative by which you're living by. That it would speak to the pieces of your life that only the Spirit could speak to this morning through the story of the Scriptures. Act 1, creation. From this part of the story, you learn that you were made. Let that sink in. You were made. You were no accident. You were no afterthought. You were formed intentionally with beautiful design and care. You learn from the creation story that you bear the image of your creator. And we're designed to live in communion with him. You learn that you were never intended to be alone, but rather to know other human beings and be known by them. 
to love other people and give deeply of yourself and be loved by them. You learn that God desires for you to be at rest in the distinctiveness of your sexuality as man or woman, unashamed in your literal and figurative nakedness. You learn that you were made for life-giving work, created to apply your energy, passion, and creativity toward good and fulfilling purposes, co-laboring with God in his creation. And finally, this part of the story teaches that your highest purpose is to represent God's glory on the earth, which means you are never more truly who you really are than when you are worshiping God. Act two, fall. From this part of the story, you learn that you dwell in a broken and grieving creation. So it's normal that you carry deep within you a gnawing sense that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. You learn from the fall that all of your relationships are critically affected by mutual brokenness. Which means that no matter how desperately you desire it, true intimacy always seems just a bit out of your reach. Most tragically, you learn that death is the dark and inevitable fate for you and for everyone you love. And so the reality of the fall means that it is natural and normal and even perfectly right to ache, to long for a new place, to never feel quite at home. You also learn from this part of the story that the darkness and depravity are not just out there, they're inside. Sin is personal. You yourself are broken. You know it. Your heart is misshapen and wounded, twisted, depraved. You have inherited a sometimes subtle but always uncontrollable rebellious heart toward your Creator. You have said to God, through your actions, if not your words, quote, I am a better God for myself than you. I will seek life apart from you. I will turn my heart towards things you have created rather than toward you yourself. I will worship those things because I don't believe you are enough for me. From the mess of the fall, you learn that even your most righteous acts are like filthy rags. Your instinct is to try to prop yourself up with your goodness, right behavior, religious deeds, self-righteousness, doing the right things but for all the wrong reasons. Your goal is to make yourself feel less guilty or look good before others or try to earn some kind of standing before a God whom you don't fully know or really deep down trust. From the fall, you learn that no matter how disciplined you are or how much doctrine you know or how many years you've been walking with God, how righteous you view yourself, how much money you give, how many church services you've attended, how many other people you've even told about Jesus, you desperately need a Savior. Act 3. Redemption. 
Good news. The best imaginable. While you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. From this part of the story, you learn that God's own son became a man and lived the life you couldn't live, obeying and trusting the father wholeheartedly, and then he died in your place. The death that was yours. The story of redemption means that God recognized in you a man or woman that could never be enough or do enough, but that didn't stop him from choosing you and loving you and sending a Savior for you. And if you've turned toward the Savior and believed in his life, death, and resurrection, here's what that means for you, Christian. It means you no longer have to carry the weight of the guilt of your sin Whatever you've done that makes you think you're unworthy to be received and accepted and delighted in as God's child, it is, has been washed clean. Shame has no power over you anymore. Redemption means that you've been brought from death to life. The literal presence of God indwells in you through his spirit all the time, whether you feel it, whether you know it or not. It means that you don't have to perform for acceptance any longer. You're free to obey God from a new place, a place of gratitude, a place of love, not from guilt, not from fear, not trying to earn it anymore. It means that there's no future version of yourself that God loves and delights in more than the you that is here right now in Christ. It means that no one apart from Jesus Christ can shape your identity That means how others perceive you, how they think of you, what they say about you. None of that carries any eternal weight. Redemption means your identity, value, worth is rooted not in your career achievement, relational status, net worth, physical beauty, education level, athletic ability, ethnic background, or social standing. It's rooted solely and only in the completed work of Christ on your behalf. And finally, the story of redemption means that you can rest You can breathe. You can smile. You can fall on your face without fear. You can laugh. You can sing. You can give to others lavishly. You can enter into dark spaces for the glory of God. You can be, in short, who you were created to be. Act 4. Recreation. In this part of the story, we learn that the Son of God will stitch together all the broken pieces. Your broken pieces, other people's broken pieces, even the broken pieces of creation itself. Jesus will make all things new. We learn that Jesus has gone on ahead to prepare a place for us so that where he is, we will also be. We learn that our enemy's days are numbered. His destruction is certain. We learn that death itself will be destroyed. It will be swallowed up by unending life. We learn that there is much on this earth now that will be missing in the next. Ache, longing, tears, disappointment, sickness, unmet dreams, Loneliness, grief, mourning, pain. 
From the recreation story, we learn that Jesus the King will rule in perfect justice and peace from his throne forever. And we learn, best of all, we will be with him, a people of God, in the place of God, with the presence of God. This is the story. This is our story. This is the gospel. The entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation, proclaims this. We are invited to worship the one to whom the scriptures point. Our hero, our savior, our king, who died for our sins according to the scriptures. Who was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Who appeared and will appear again. This is the good news. Praise be to God. Let us pray. Our Father, the good news is even better than that. Because it's impossible for us to wrap our little minds around the plan that you have. It's impossible for us to fully know the story. It's impossible for us to understand it at such a level as what is true, but God, would you take this glimpse that you've given to us through your word and would you help us to realign our lives around it? Would you help us to lay aside all these false ways that we've been living? Will we come back to what is true? Will we come back to this story, this simple but incredibly profound and rich and deep story of the scriptures, the good news of Jesus? Father, I thank you that all points to your son, Jesus Christ. What a plan. What a way to redeem your creation. We can do nothing but worship you. And we do that now together in the name of Jesus. Amen.